This is episode 98 of Alohomora for August 23rd, 2014. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. Noah Freed. And I'm Kat Miller, and our special fan guest today is Harrison Two. Welcome, Harrison. Well, thank you very much. I'm really glad to be on the show. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. You know, your your house, your wand, if you know it, your Patronus, all that stuff. Well, um, in real life, I am a second-year economics student at the University of California, Riverside. My house, I would say, well, Pottermore sorted into me into Ravenclaw, but I am in total disagreement of that. I am a Gryffindor through and through. Um, I don't want to believe what Pottermore told me because they're not true. So, <laughs> well, you are certainly welcome in Gryffindor. So, <laughs> yes, I am a Gryffindor. Sorry, cat. Um, no, it's it's okay. But so I am a self-proclaimed Gryffindor. Um, as far as a Patronus, I don't know what my Patronus would be because I'm not really that type that sort of is very naturey. So my Patronus probably, I mean, if these things were around in the visiting world, my Patronus would probably be my iPhone, which is kind of strange, <laughs> but that's probably what it'd be. And, um, I do have, um, a Harry Potter wand. Is it Harry Potter's wand or is it? Yes, uh... it's Harry Potter's wand. <laughs> oh. I mean, so it's, it's, it's a replica of Harry Potter's wand. I just want to remind everybody to read Chapter 20, <laughs> oh, The Hagrid's Tale. Actually, no, Chapter 20, Hagrid's Tale. Um, it's an excellent chapter. Uh, it's a story within a story, actually. And we remind you to read it now before you listen to the rest of the show because it's what we're talking about today. And I figure I'll bring this up here um, for you international listeners. I am proud to say I have not read the chapter in English, so... In French, you should have read Chapitre 20, Le Ris de Hagrid. In Dutch, you should have read Half zu Twintig, Hagrid's for How. In Spanish, you should have read Capitulo 20, La Historia de Hagrid. And for all other languages, there's just too many to list. Wow, that's impressive. Impressive, yeah. And with that reminder that we've never gotten on a little more, <laughs> uh, we're going to take a look at your comments from last week's episode, um, which... Uh, covered chapter 19 of Order of the Phoenix. And the first comment comes on the topic of the Weasley is our king chant. I wrote Chang in the doc, so that is not what it is. It is a chant. And this is by Hufflepug on the main site. And it says, I know that songs and chants are common at sporting events, especially English football. But the difference between that and Weasley is our king is that Malfoy wrote this song specifically to play on Ron's insecurities so he could choke. We know this because Malfoy and his gang watched the Gryffindors practice and could pick up on how easily Ron gets flustered because of his insecurities. Plus, they take it to the hallways and the classrooms, etc., which has nothing to do with Quidditch. This is definitely bullying. And just a follow-up comment um, from Rose Lumos, who had a really great personal story that parallels it. I won't go into all of that, and should definitely take a look on the main site. But she also says, I feel that so many things about the Weasley is our king situation were handled wrong. First, Draco should have been punished for actively bullying Ron, especially in such a public way. Second, Harry and George should have received just punishment for their actions. Yes, they were in a fight, but it was their first serious violent offense 
offensive. I believe McGonagall was about to give out a reasonable punishment before Umbridge stormed in. And so last week, basically, since none of us were on, the discussion was that um, that this was just a typical chant, not unlike those used in sports na- um, in the Muggle world, but obviously Hufflepug, Rose Lumos, and quite a lot of other people on the main site um, saw it a very different way. Yeah, if this happened in a Muggle school today, there would be serious allegations taken against Malfoy. So, but but I thought I, sports songs can get pretty mean sometimes, though. I thought against individual players. Really? Sure, American sports are pretty. Oh yeah, you get really. They serious. can be, but also the, if they're they're going after professional athletes, it's a little bit different than your what what is Ron at this point? He's like fifteen, right? Yeah, something somewhere yeah. around there, and. Also, like, um, you know, they the the person points out, this is going on not just in on the Quidditch pitch, but this is going on in the hallways. I mean, th- that's bullying. Right. Oh, for sure. Where are the teachers? Right. Coming from someone fresh out of high school, it's almost like, well, a year out, but still, uh, you know, having gone to those sports games, it's it, it does sort of feel like it, but I feel like the security or Madam Hooch or whoever should have really done something about it because it is, um, I mean, now with the political correctness of self-esteem, but it's still sort of breaking with the tradition at Hogwarts of Quidditch being like an inter-house kind of thing. So I'd even say, yeah, this has gone way too far. I am surprised, I guess, that um, McGonagall didn't speak up or something during the match. I know Lee was talking very loudly to try and cover it, but... hmm. No. no, but if McGonagall had said anything, maybe Ron would have been humiliated. You know, Draco could have screamed from the audience, "There's your mother, McGonagall. <laughs> she needs you. To him. You need him to back hurt you up, huh?" Or something like that. And then he would have been. That's entirely you know. possible, I suppose. That's true. And the previous comment um, is a good segue into the next response we got from one of our listeners, and it's on the topic of this really intense and drastic uh, lifelong Quidditch fan that Umbridge. Um, gives to Harry, George, and Fred, and this comes from Dust Charm on the forums. Umbridge is actively looking for any opportunity to deplete Harry's morale. A fist fight is a great opportunity, and while she's at it, better make sure that Gryffindor can't play really at all, because if they still have a chance at winning, that might make Harry happy. But going further, I wonder if it's also something against Gryffindor House in general. I mean, she clearly favors Slytherin, and the Inquisitorial squad is pretty much all Slytherins. And with the Gryffindor-Slytherin rivalry, granted Slytherin tends to have a rivalry with all houses, and the other houses tend to unite against Slytherin, but still, it's particularly noticeable between those two. And while I don't really know one way or the other about if she set this in particular up, I think she probably was trying to set something up. She never intervened with the Slytherins egging the Gryffindors on, perhaps hoping Gryffindor would respond, and then she could punish them. I think it's maybe also a show of power against McGonagall. First off, she's Gryffindor, which makes this all the better for Umbridge, perhaps. But McGonagall is the one who openly goes against Umbridge. And this was the opportunity to publicly overpower her authority-wise. I agree. I think it's all of those things. And um, didn't we learn that Umbridge is a, was a Slytherin in school? So I think that you know kind of sets up her bias immediately. For sure. I wasn't sure that she was a Slytherin, but I assumed because of this. Yeah, I think it came out a few months ago or at some point that she is indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, but does cutting out Quidditch altogether undermine McGonagall? I don't know if I completely see the connection. 
there, even though she loves it for sure. I think this was more, you know, to take away the fun. Uh, I, no, I don't think so. I think part of it is definitely against McGonagall. I see the connection yeah. with McGonagall, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah, because, um, well, I guess it's in, yeah, it's at the end of the chapter, just the, the, the back and forth how McGonagall tries to, like, say she doesn't need Umbridge's help, but then she tells her about the new educational decree. She clearly uses that as an opportunity. Right. And she's mad at Umbridge for going to Dumbledore to get Gryffindor reinstated. Right. Ugh. Nasty. She has. She yeah. She. I think this comment is definitely right. She's. She's always had something against Gryffindor, and now where what the main motivator of that is, I think, is up to debate. Whether it's like because of her inherent Slytherin bias, or because Gryffindor is Harry's house. You know, I think there's debate room for debate there. But yeah. And then add McGonagall to that, and you know, it's trifecta almost for Umbridge. Yep. I, I see that. No, are you still not convinced? Um, no, no, I'm convinced. I think I misunderstood the comment. I think you guys are right. Oh. I like that. All right. Unanimity. Oh. Yep. <laughs> Good with that. <laughs> and the last comment comes on um, the Protean charm and Hermione's inspiration from it, uh, for it, rather. She talks about how she got basically the idea from the dark mark that the Death Eaters use. And this comes from She Flew Like a Madman. And it says, OGM, guys. In other words, obligatory. There you go, cat. Wow. <laughs> obligatory genius moment. Mm-hmm. I cannot talk today. <laughs> OGM guys, Hermione getting her cunning idea for the Dumbledore's army galleons from the dark arts slash mark is perfect reverse foreshadowing of Malfoy's plots the next year when he gets ideas from her. Firstly, about the room of requirement. Secondly, when he overhears her talking about how to smuggle potions, in his case, poisons, into the school. That's that cyclical plotting Joe is so brilliant at. <sighs> that's true. That's a good, that's a good OGM. That's a good one. Indeed. I just, I mean, it's something so simple that you don't really, like, make the connection, at least not consciously most of the time, but I think it is just interesting how much, thing, how many things feed into one another. Yeah, and it's especially difficult when you're reading only one chapter a week, and you're mm-hmm. not on the show every week. You know, uh, I know we get a lot of slack for missing things sometimes, but, um, you know... It's it's not as easy as just sitting down and reading the book. So that's I yeah, like totally. it. Yeah, totally. Foreshadowing is tricky though because I feel like that's always tricky territory. You're never quite completely sure that it's something. Well, what do you think here? In this particular instance? Uh, yeah. That that's the thing. This one seems kind of I'm, I'm sort of in the middle. I can't I can't kind of figure it out. Uh, if you, if you're both on board, I mean, what do you think, Harrison? Um. As far as the foreshadowing thing, because I've read the series sort of in pieces, foreshadowing is always a little hard for me. But in this case, I would sort of say that I think because, because granted, the wizarding world is sort of small compared to the muggle world. I mean, no offense to all the Potter people. The Potter is awesome. But the wizarding world is a bit small compared to other things. So I think it's just literally a, uh, I want to say it's coincidental. I know Joe doesn't do that much that's actually coincidental, but to be honest, I want to say that this one's coincidental. And that she didn't plan it. 
No, I don't think she planned this because would she really make, oh, well, this is Joe we're talking about, but still, would even Joe make it like this? I, I don't think so. And the protean charm is just something, it, it's literally out of convenience, I think. Really? That's what I think of this situation. I think, I mean, there's a lot of situations that are definitely foreshadowing, but I think this one is seriously just out of convenience. Hmm, Okay. Sometimes I think that a lot of this foreshadowing, this crazy, like, some of the stuff that's just way out there is literally coincidence. Sometimes yeah, I start yeah, to in wonder. any book, you can find a million, a million things. Exactly. Mm. In Harry Potter, there's more than average because Joe does a great job in making them. But no, I think in any book, you can find a lot of this. Hmm. She's still very smart and very, very talented writer. Oh, she's a very no, talented writer. Oh, yeah, she's a very talented writer. Don't, don't... Let the record show. Yes, let the record show that she's a very talented writer. Well, speaking of talented writers, I guess we'll move on to our podcast question of the week responses from last week. Um, Just to refresh everybody's memory, the question was, Fred and George have been trying to deny Ron was their brother for four years. This is a joke, obviously, but what does Ron have to do to gain their favor? Saving the stone, entering the chamber, and encounter with Sirius weren't enough? And we got a lot of responses on this. Um, a lot of them were kind of along the same tone, but there were a few kind of standouts that I'm going to read here. The first one is from Socks and Slugs. It says, Friend George tease everyone. It is just what they do, their nature. We all know they have a great love and respect for Harry, yet also tease him all the time. In Order of the Phoenix, chapter 26, page 576 of the U.S. edition, Gryffindor has lost at Quidditch and Ron is blaming himself. Friend George tell Harry that they refuse to tease Ron and will hold on to jokes about his playing for a party. This shows that they really care and do not want to tease when Ron is feeling so horrible. Unfortunately, we never hear them tell Ron that they have respect for him while they are both alive. Oh. Yeah, I think, like, having grown up with a brother, I definitely can relate to this. Um, You know, you tease one another and all that, but whenever it comes to other people, I mean, I think this is true not just for brothers, but for family in general. Like, it's okay for you to say stuff like teasing, but then when someone on the outside says something, you're the first to jump to their defense no matter what. Yeah, all my my older brother is eight years older than me, so we were never, you know, kind of in any situation together where this would take place. So I have no personal frame of reference for this at all. So, Noah, you, you have a brother. I do have a brother. We, uh, we're we kind of competitive, and we tease each other constantly. But with Fred and George and Ron, I think the issue is much deeper. You know, I think they've been kind of teasing him for many, many years just because he is this kind of youngest son. And maybe – and also because I think Molly favors Ron a little bit more than Fred and George too. So maybe they're a bit jealous. Harrison, were you going to say something? Yeah. Yes, I am. Um, so I totally neglected to say all this at the beginning, but for you listeners to know, I am uh, totally blind recording this. And this is important because I have a younger brother. He is four years younger than I am. Um, and we tease each other constantly. At home, it's always something. We tease each other. We, you know, play fight. E- even to this day, I'm 19, he's 15, and we still do it. But on the outside, if someone will make fun of me because I'm blind or say I can't do something or do something, especially with my disability, my brother will be the first one. And I know that he respects me and I know that I respect him. But at home, within the family, it, it's it's all's fair. So honestly, 
I definitely know at least where Fred and George are coming from and to a point where Ron's coming from, I've in a way seen both sides. So sibling rivalry is one of those things where the the rock-solid foundation of being siblings, if you've grown up in a good family, can really take precedent over, you know, little quarrels. It's funny that you mention, you know, respect and all of that, because this kid had a comment pretty much about that. It says, I think the twins do have respect for Ron in a sense. They don't dislike him, are grateful to some things he has done, would help him if need be, and I think they're probably even a bit impressed with what he's done, even though they're never going to admit that. I think the only one that doesn't have their respect is Percy. I think they're giving the most respect to Ron that they're ever going to. Ron is their only little brother. He's their only shot at having a little brother to pick on. With their personalities, they're surely not going to pass that up. It's the easiest way for them to show that they like him. Also, since he's the closest thing to them personality-wise, they may even be picking on him not only because he's younger, but also because he may fight back with them in a way closer to how they want to, as opposed to the bigger brothers. It's fun to be the, to have one who retaliates. So that feeds right into what you were saying about you and your brother. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's fun to have one that retaliates. I like that comment. It definitely applies. Do you two find that true, Caleb, Noah? Find that true? I don't like fighting. Right. Everyone wants, you're right. You want everybody to get along, right? Yeah. Me and my brother sit each other to the emergency room each while we were growing up. So Wait, it definitely what? happened. Really? Yeah. My brother dislocated my finger and I oh made him to have to get <gasps> stitches in his forehead. Oh my I mean, it just happens. Boys growing up. I did that to my brother once too. I hit him with a pillow. Went to the hospital. I banged my brother wow. into the entertainment center. Five stitches in the nose. I still remember. But I feel really bad about that one. Wow. I feel like I'm missing out on, like, a, a key part of childhood here. You are. You are. Wow. Well, I guess my fictional brother or sister is not missing out, so it's probably okay. <laughs> Our last comment here kind of flips this the question around a little bit. It comes from Chocolate Frog Ravenclaw. Yum. I kind of want Chocolate mm. Frog. Yeah. Right now. Yeah, I know. Mm, sounds good. Anyway. The response says, what if this question was turned around? The twins seem to not have respect for Ron, but does Ron show his respect for them? He is much more obviously jealous of their popularity, but despite that, he rarely points out that he has respect for them or that he is fond of having them around. This is not just a one-sided attempt to be noticed and appreciated. Ron does not publicly recognize the twins the same way he wants to be publicly recognized by them. I think this is nothing more than a brotherly relationship. Both the twins and Ron rely heavily on support from one another, but neither one publicly displays this. The twins put Ron down in a way that many older brothers do, and Ron pretends he doesn't care or need them in a way that many younger brothers do. As they all mature, they we see them grow closer, Ron staying with them in the Deathly Hallows. But at this point, they are still teenagers trying to figure out who they are. Yeah, I mean, that's totally legit. So there it is. I mean, like I said, most of the comments were... Kind of along that along that vein that it's just brotherly love. Yeah, it's just growing up. Yeah. So there you have it. That's the uh, responses to the podcast question of the week. Chapter 20. It's her. Hagrid's tale. <gasps> hmm. So here we are in chapter 20 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And Hagrid's back. Hagrid's back, and that's the big the big deal. So the trio come down to Hagrid's hut. They knock on his door, and 
they open it and they find Hagrid with a stake on his face. Or, and actually, he's applying a dragon stake to his face that is green because his face is very bloody because he has been through an ordeal. And this chapter is about the ordeal that he's been through, which is, of course, going to see the Giants with Madame Maxime, which was a very, very interesting adventure that he talks about in this chapter. Um, there's throughout the Throughout the chapter, really, it's story time, and Hagrid's leading it. And then, eventually, Umbridge comes in and spoils all the fun. Then Umbridge sort of accosts Hagrid, asking him where he's been. Hagrid's already told us where he's been, but obviously Umbridge doesn't know. And then she leaves. But this story is just great. It was really fun. What did you all think of the, the story? Kind well, of- that's what I was going to say, actually. This this starts the second half of the book because there's 38 chapters in this book. So this Ooh. chapter 20 is the official first chapter of the second half, which it's kind of nice to start out with this, you know, with this story. It's a nice yeah, story. What's really interesting, and I'll bring it out now because I'm sure it's not really going to come up later, but I really enjoy how Hagrid responds to Umbridge when he opens the door. He says something like, I'll beg your pardon, but who the ruddy hell are you? Uh-huh. Uh, because that, <laughs> so we get um, we get to see how Hagrid reacts to people, like, just in general, when, like, he doesn't know someone. Like, that's probably how he <laughs> interacts with people who he feels are infringing upon his face in daily life, which is really funny. Super Gryffindor. Absolutely. So so my first my first main thought on this chapter was the fact that when Hagrid gets back, the trio jump in on him, um, just talking, because they, they know that something is up, and they know that they've been he's been with giants, because Hermione actually says that to Hagrid, and then Hagrid, Hagrid says, what, you, you know that? How could you? And Hermione says, oh, we just guessed. But I just thought in this scene specifically that even though Hagrid said, oh, it, it's my, I'd lose my job if I tell you this information – they kept at him. And I realized that this happens over and over in the book series. Um, at this point, it's kind of wild that Hagrid even tries to hold anything back anyway. But it just made me wonder, has Hagrid not learned by this point that the, the trio kind of is already in on information, um, that he can almost trust them as he would adults? Or if he's not going to trust them, why can't he hold back more information and kind of figure out when they're trying to, uh, you know, get more information from him. It seems like you really can't hold back anything and they just know how to work him. So I want to revisit a, a sort of an old question when we've talked about Hagrid before, you know, is he, I don't want to say stupid, but is he, is, is the trio smarter than he is just, uh, just thoroughly such that they can always kind of get this information from him? Well, at least he's not drunk this time. So that can't be used as an excuse. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think the transition that you're like speaking to is actually happening right here. Mm-hmm. That like he, yeah. Like, finally, he's just giving up. And, like, to answer the first question, in some ways, yeah, I think that they are. Especially, definitely, Hermione um, is smarter than Hagrid in a lot of ways. But, yeah. obviously, not in all ways. Like, as far as, like, experience and things like that go. But um, Hermione's very, like, just, like... Um, I don't even, she's like just very intelligent when it comes to knocking out details and like prying in the right way and things like that. Um, but this is where I think Hagrid does start to have that transition of just giving up where, um, let's see, they kept, like you said, they kept going at him and then he says, never known kids like you three for no one more than more uh-huh. yada and I'm not complimenting you neither and nosy some call it interfering, but then he just spills the story. Um, so I think this is this is definitely a big point where he just sort of gives up. 
He knows he can trust them at the very least. So, I mean, or um, not even that, that they aren't causing trouble, I suppose. <laughs> most, most of the time. That's most debatable. of the time. That's most of the time. Yeah. Oh, uh, they're definitely causing trouble this year. They're not causing trouble. Well, he doesn't trouble. know about that and, yet. Yeah, he doesn't know about that. And they're not the ones causing trouble. But anyway. Not any serious trouble, given the trouble at Hogwarts because of Umbridge and stuff. And, and maybe Hagrid also knows that Dumbledore trusts them as well to a degree. Or I get it. You said serious trouble because it involves serious <laughs> oh, kind that of. Is so oh, that was <laughs> unintentional. unintentional. Yeah, that was good. But there was also there was also just on the same point. Uh, there's a scene. There's, there's a spot where Harry is actually talking about the Dementors, and Hagrid's like, "What? The de- the Dementors? What happened, Harry?" And then Harry says, "No, no, no. Wait, I'll, I'll tell you later. Why don't you tell me this story first? <laughs> so he uses. <laughs> yeah, that that's a, a good point. Harry definitely controls that moment. <laughs> he, he takes it over. It's like honestly, there's a line where Harry's face just has a sense of. I, I, I don't. I yeah. don't have the exact line in front of me, but they're manipulating him. <laughs> It says yeah. innocent determination. Yeah. <laughs> because like in years past, Her- Hagrid would have flipped a table had he heard that Dementors were attacking Harry. But it's obviously a very different reaction here. Things are all, all very different. But yeah, I totally buy your point there. He totally is owning, I don't know if manipulating, but he's definitely the aggressor in the conversation. He is. He is. And Hagrid's just sort of willing. But at the same time, it spills over because he just wants to tell the story too. And they know that. Yeah, Harry would be, despite his size, the big spoon in this situation. Yeah, the big, big spoon. spoon. Uh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm just reading some of your notes further down the dock, and I have a feeling that's going to fit into the situation. That's where we're going. going to fit into the conversation at some points. I figured I'd just pull it out now. Yeah. All Might right. Well. Pull out your spoons now. <laughs> so. Oh, God. I just thought a uh, really interesting, interesting story of Hagrid's, and while I'm reading the story uh, the plot, you know, I've read the books a bunch of times, but reading it this time, I was thinking about, I thought it was really interesting how the giants originally were many tribes, but in the story, they're all just one conglomerated tribe, and that's what Hagrid and uh, Madame Maxime find. And I, you learn about giant society in this chapter. It's I don't believe it's anywhere else in the books that you actually kind of go into a little bit of detail. And we learned, we learned that there is a Gurg, which is the head giant of each giant tribe, and it is the, as you might imagine, it's sort of the biggest, toughest Gurg, and what Hagrid and Madame Maxime had to do was go give presents to this Gurg, and I have this thought later in the doc, but I want to bring it up now, the present that Albus Dumbledore tells Hagrid to give to the, the head Gurg there, whose name is uh, Carcass, which is an inter- interesting name as well, is uh, an everlasting fire. It's actually called... What is it called? What is it? I lost it. Um, that Galbraithian. Galbraithian uh, fire? Gal- um, hold on. Um, branch O Galbraithian fire. That's in Hagrid's tongue. So. Yeah, it, so it's this complicated spell, Galbraithian fire, that apparently. Galbraithian. It's with you, G U. Yeah. Galbraithian? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I guess it could be Galbraithian. Never mind. I'll shut up. A branch of Galbraithian fire. That's how I always imagined Hagrid. There you go. And can I can I just say yeah. real quickly that I looked up because I think Gurg is a hilarious word, and I looked it up on Urban Dictionary, and the mm-hmm. definition is a freakishly large deposit of fat located oh. under the chin. Really? <laughs> so, well, that, that's like a worst nightmare is waking up having that. Yeah, pretty much. Um, 
yeah, well, so there you after go. reading this chapter six times in six different languages, um, only two of them changed the actual word gurg. One used, um, I forget which one used the word head, and then um, I forget which language, but I remember in Dutch they used the word oper, which means like sort of the higher one, the upper, the you know, the boss figure. Mm. So, but I never would have imagined it would be what fat under the skin that's a new one yeah there are some other much more disgusting gruesome definitions that we won't go into um, let's so. not talk about but i guess that. that makes sense since the gurg is apparently supposed to be the biggest and the most disgusting right exactly but uh on the on the fire why did albus dumbledore of haggard give them some everlasting fire what is the possible significance of that Ooh, shiny <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah it's something is that yeah. It? Yeah, yeah that's totally. it totally kind of is like bring it to the tribal people here's the fire it's really and also i think fire is like a, a mark of technology and higher thought maybe one mm-hmm. of the first tools of humanity things like that but the giants are supposed to be much smarter than even trolls so i mean i wouldn't go far to say much smarter i would say that there's a small leap between a, a troll and a giant hey hagrid's dad was a wizard and he got down with that so i mean yeah, let's not go back there, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> it, um, yeah, so that, I thought that was interesting that Dumbledore chose fire, but I think at the end of the day, maybe it wasn't – as smart as Dumbledore is, he was really going for the ooh shiny factor. Yeah, I mean go big or go home. Like if you want to make an impression, you've got to start out with the biggest, coolest gift you can think of basically. You know. Now what happened to that fire? We hear nothing of that fire in the chapter after it's used. Why didn't he use it later? When he got in trouble, I'm talking about the gurg with the with the fire Car- um, carcass. I don't know. Maybe one of them sat on it and broke the stick, and thus it died. But it's everlasting. But it's everlasting. So would the fire continue to burn? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, every spell has a loophole, so there must be something that can, um, you know, stop everlasting it. water. Aguamenti. Maybe that's everlasting water. Mm-hmm. So who knows? But the. Uh... So the Gurg gets the everlasting fire, and I thought that was interesting. This Gurg carcass, of course, is going to is going to be killed in this chapter later, presumably by the next Gurg, Golgamath. And I I just thought, just to get a little bit into the entomology, I thought it was really interesting. Carcass, his name, all I could really find on it was that the name kind of sounds like Carcass. C A R K C A S S. Which is interesting because he becomes a carcass. <laughs> that's true. When he dies. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing. That's, so that's, foreshadowing. that's foreshadowing, but that's, that's unfortunate that this, this giant's entire life has just been built up in J.K. Rowling's consciousness to be killed. Maybe later. he has a whole backstory that we don't know about. Pottermore, please. <laughs> what could that carcass. be? Hmm. And Golgamath's name, this is from the wiki, is derived from the number Google. Its numerical value is a single digit one with a hundred zeros afterwards, or ten to the hundredth power. So that's that. He's just this big guy, big number. So I, I don't think maybe, maybe Joe didn't spend a lot of time on these. Names. Wait, is that why Google's? Sorry, is that why the search engine is called that because it's so big that it holds yes. everything? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wait for real. Yeah, no, that's true. It it actually is true. I want to ask you guys, do you think it's that Joe did not spend time on these names? Or do you think, or maybe I'm reading too much into this, do you think it's that she wanted to make them intentionally simple? So like, oh yeah, Google. Because they're simple. Yeah, but did she mean for them to? Yeah, I mean, 
Joe, like, certainly pays a lot of attention to her names more than a lot of, more than any author I've ever read. So, mm-hmm. I like what you're saying, Harrison. Yeah, I think they're intentional. intentionally simple. Yeah, I think they're intentionally simple. So, because they're giants, they're you know, it's meant to show their what disintelligence, simplicity, perhaps. Simplicity. Yeah. Intelligence is good though too. <laughs> I read them more, not simplistic. I just read the names as sounding very barbaric, which is the way a lot of the giants are, especially in this chapter. Barbaric, that's okay, a better barbaric. word. Yeah. That's true. I concur. Just like you see those names and it's just like, Golgamath. <laughs> Golgamath. I, I don't know. I think Carcass is super cheeky. It's kind of like snuffles. I love it. I don't know. But the Ks make it a little more like fierce than if it was just like... Car- like carcass. The normal right? carcass. You'd be afraid of right. carcass. I agree. K's make everything That's better. That's funny. Just saying. Though I hate it when people spell my name with a K. Uh-huh. I hate it when people spell my, my name with a C, so I get you. Oops, I almost did that. I was giving you knucks through the mic. You couldn't see that. Though. I almost Sorry. did that. Um, I hate to say it, but um, I still, for you listeners out there, I still can't get over the way the Dutch people pronounce it, and that's Hochemat. And it sounds so. It Whoa. sounds so like. That just sounds like it's a lot of. Effort. Like that's literally oh. how uh, the Dutch audiobook narrator pronounced it, and I'm sorry, I still can't get over that. It sounds Fleming. Ex- well, Dutch like. itself. Mm. And exhausting. Oh. Not really. Is Dutch a Fleming language? Is is that what you're saying? In, oh, for uh, all you Nederlanders, please excuse me, all you Dutch people, but a bit. Okay. Uh, yes, it's a bit of a Fleming language, but uh, just that name, just the way it was written, and it was written the same way, you know, as in English, but just the way it was pronounced, get um, just heightens a lot of that sense. What about carcass? That one was still carcass. What about gurg? That one was still carcass. Just with an gurg? accent. That was upper. That's where I. Uh, that was they, they changed, changed it to upper. It, yeah. That's not the same at all. Upper. How many languages do you know? Uh, let's see. I know ten. Holy crap. I have not read Harry Potter in all ten because I still can't get a hold of the Japanese edition. Maybe someone out there in listening land can hook you up. Yes, the Japanese edition of Harry Potter, all seven books. Audio, please. So. Wait, don't they have the Japanese ones on Pottermore? Yeah, but I don't want to be reading through, like, tons of... Because Japanese isn't written like English, I don't want to be reading through tons of uh, characters I don't know. It's the way Japanese is set up. We, they don't use an alphabet. They, well, they have an alphabet, but they also have like 5,000 Chinese characters. Um, so I don't want to be trying oh. to figure out a bunch of things that I don't know. I'd rather just listen to it. Got you. Got it. Okay. Sorry. Yes, yes. Sorry, Noah. Continue. Thank you. So back to the chapter discussion. Um, I, was, I was really fascinated the entire time by the fact that uh, some of the giants knew English and some of the ones didn't. The ones that did know English were the giants that uh, the different Gurgs used to translate when they needed to hear what Hagrid or Madame Maxime were saying. So I just thought, you know, I was, I was just thinking in my head, when did the giants learn English? Was it during a time, was it during the last war when the giants were aligned with the, the Death Eaters? Was there sort of a, an English training thing going on mid-war? Or was there a time perhaps where giants and humans were interacting more? which I kind of doubt because it seems like there's always been this animosity. What do you guys think? Well, there must have been a time, right? Because otherwise we wouldn't have Hagrid. But I thought that was a rare case. I think Hagrid was a... F- yeah, I think that was a fluke. 
I mean, I think the copulation is a rare case, but I think the fact that they were living near each other might not be. Because I know that the, the tribes used to be spread out more across um, more across the world, and now now they were kind of pushed out to the mountains. Now it seems that the the, the Russian mountains actually, but we don't have too much about you know their old society. Wait, Russian mountains? Yeah, I read on the wiki. That's apparently where they are. They're in Russia. Really? I wonder where that where information did that come information from? come from. I mean that was that was on that was on the Harry wiki. Which I I trust somewhat. I mean, they could be wrong, but I'm pretty no, sure. No, they went into France, and I think they say they crossed the border back. Oh, but they did. Did they say what border it was? No, they went through Minsk. So yeah, uh, something about the Polish border. He had like a, a run in with someone. Right. That's right. That's right. right. A, a vampire, right? In a pub. Yeah. Well, that was in Minsk, wasn't it? Yes, that was in Minsk. Right. Um. I think they're in Russia. Okay, it just surprised me. Oh, he ran into trolls on the Polish border. That's what it was. Anyway, I do think there was a time that they probably, not more peacefully, but maybe closer together, you know, when they were not as, I guess, kind of exiled to one place. Because my my other point is that if they have the capacity to learn English, there's probably capacity for more peaceful negotiations, working together, and maybe if, if someone had bothered to teach them, they could have integrated into society to some degree. I, um, I'm not sure about that. I can't imagine a you know a giant like. Well, yeah, their culture is so different. walking down Diagon Alley. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, like they couldn't have been too close to the wizarding kind without Muggles noticing. So. Right. And while the international statute of secrecy hasn't secrecy hasn't been around forever, there still would have been probably a general not wanting to let the Muggles see the giants thing going. Right, that would uh, blow everything over. The entire magical community. Mm-hmm. All would be lost. But the farther back you go, it's probably more and more likely. I mean, the giants and the and the orcs lived happily together in Lord of the Rings, so there you go. Yeah, but that's <laughs> Different world the entirely. inferior series. Oh, whoa. Whoa. We're not mm. going to play which one's better, but we aren't going to put down Lord of the I'm Rings. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I am, like, a huge Harry Potter fanatic. I refuse to read past The Hobbit, so, yeah. It's okay. I have a hard time getting past the, like, middle of the second book, so I get you. They're hefty. I understand. Yeah. Anyway. But on a, on a different point entirely, um, Hagrid has a damsel of distress moment at the end of the story, because when he, when the other Gurg, Golgamath, takes over um, and starts beating some of the other giants who disagree. Uh, and Hagrid actually goes to bring a present to the next Gurg, which um, one of the trio, I think it might have been, I forget who it was, says, why would you go to that next Gurg? You, you know that you're probably going to be in trouble. But Hagrid went and he tried to give a peace offering to this Gurg just in case. And the Gurg's buddies, uh, Golgamath's buddies, grabbed him. And then Madame Maxime actually has to do some crazy wand work, which was cool because... You know, Hagrid, you know, uh, presumably she saved his life. Then after that occurs, Hagrid says this to the trio, and which made me think that maybe there was more to the story that Hagrid is not telling them. Obviously, there are, there's another element, a big one, that starts with a G uh, by the name of Grop. But that makes me think that there must be something else. And here's why. I'm just going to say this quote in an approximation of Hagrid, Hagrid's voice. Um, this is about – he's talking about Madame Maxime. 
She's something when she's roused. Olympi. <laughs> Fiery, you know. Oh, Expect it's the French in her. You had to start with that line in that voice. Oh. Continue. Hagrid gazed. Myself. Hagrid gazed misty-eyed into the fire. Harry allowed him 30 seconds reminiscence before clearing his throat loudly. Do you know how long 30 seconds is, guys? Wait, do you want to go 30 yeah. seconds? Ready? No, because start. I would get too uncomfortable. This is 30 seconds, and I want you to imagine just... Before I'm, I'm we do, timing it. Wait. Before we do this pause, imagine your head Haggard just looking into the fire and everybody else silent. Okay, it's going to start now. Three, three, four, five, six. Hold on. That was 30 seconds. Oh, God. <laughs> yep. That was 30 seconds. That's a lot. So there is that pause is in the chapter. That's in the story. And you can read right over it. But that happened. That is canon. That is that 30 seconds is canon. And what That's the it. heck happened? <laughs> there's there's uh, more to the story. <laughs> where was Hagrid's mind? Right. Mm. Well, here's what I I'm don't thinking. think we want to know. In the mountains. Well, His mind was in the mountains. Without going into too much detail... I'm pretty sure that you've got at Olympi, Maxime, you've got Rubius Hagrid, both of them confronting a lot of danger, both of them the only half-giants that they probably mm-hmm. ever met in their life, going back to their ancestral roots where their parents, you know, used to be, you know, the, the energies of the jungle around them, you know, just hiding out there in the caves like Cat, the spoon thing, but uh, this is now yeah, the time. The spoon. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just think this, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's something there, and I think it was sort of special. And J.K. Rowling does not directly, you know, say anything, but this is like, also, she's also addressing it with this thirty minute, thirty second silence. Hagrid is also the small spoon in this situation. Just oh, saying, God. he would be. That's true. He would be. Yeah. he definitely would be. He's a, he's a softy. <laughs> that he is. Um. Is, I bet there's fan fictions that cover that 30 seconds. I'm sure there are. I would not doubt that. I am absolutely sure there are. We're not going to read any on the show. We are not. I'm not going That's to. what you should do as your special feature this week, Noah. Uh, wait, it's... Oh, it's, it's, it's my special feature? Yeah, okay. you should read a Hagrid in a limp fan fiction. Noah, you... as a fan of the show, I dare yeah. you. Oh. I dare you. Speaking from for me and probably a lot of the other fans on the show, I dare you. There you go, buddy. But I have to write it then. I'll write it. <laughs> You'll write it? I'll write it. I'll write it. I've got tons of time in Taiwan. I'll write it. Um, and um, you read it. All right. That sounds great. I'd be happy to. All right. Kat has my email. And that goes for anybody listening to the show. If you want me to read a fan fiction that you write, I will read it. And I will post it on my. I'll post it somewhere, or I'll, I'll give it to you. That's that'd be fun. There you go. So I think there are two really important things that we learn in this chapter. One is so when the um, 
when Hagrid and Magzim are still trying to get um, get talk to the the giants, they figure out that the Death Eaters are also there. Specifically, Hagrid mentions seeing Walden McNair, um, who had also was the executioner who would have killed Buckbeak and did in some other timeline. We're not going there again, um, <laughs> but yeah. So I think it's really important because. Like, this is a really important moment in the book, in the series. The Order of the Phoenix is a shifting point, and like we mentioned earlier, this is the halfway point, and so this shows that they're going for similar things. It really drives that this conflict is really moving at a big pace, um, and the Death Eaters were more successful. I mean, the Hagrid and Magzim got there first, but um, this new Gurg was more sympathetic to McNair which is a really big blow to Hagrid and Magzim and Dumbledore, obviously. Why do you think that was? I mean, I almost put it in uh, the doc, and I maybe it's because just the, the Giants are very anxious, and I guess the the Death Eaters are able to play on their fear of humans and, and wizard kind a little bit, but that way, you know, maybe Lord Voldemort offers them a kind of protection. Yeah, well, I mean, Hagrid gives his own explanation because he mentions how McNair is... Um, he likes killing as much as Golgamoth. No wonder they're getting on so well. I mean, that's definitely part of it. I don't think that's totally all of it. I think it's, yeah, a lot of what you're saying. Um, Voldemort at face value is probably more like boldly powerful and they can pro and McNair and the other death ears can probably show that more clearly than Dumbledore can with Gabrathian fire and a goblin helmet and whatever the third gift is. I can't remember now. Um, it's almost like a, it's almost like a political campaign, isn't it? Like either Dumbledore yeah, or Voldemort. Yeah, and Golgamoth is a brute, more of a brute than um, Carcass was. Then, so I mean, it makes sense that those um, are going to align a little bit more. They probably had those Voldemort for, or Republicans for Voldemort stickers on their car. You mean on their broomstick? <laughs> <laughs> Although they don't have cars, so like on the side of the mountain or something. They'd be yeah. huge cars. <laughs> and they'd be they made would. out of rocks. With giant bumper stickers. Crazy. Also, there was the moment at the end of the chapter where Hermione calmly asked Hagrid, what about your mother? And that was one of the personal details that Hagrid probably wasn't going to go into, just like um, just just like with Grop, which he does not tell the trio. And Hagrid, Hagrid lets them know that his mother is dead Many, a couple years ago, and it's sad. Yeah. I think, too, it's important to point out in the end when Umbridge is in the uh, cabin mm -hmm. and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I was, you know, away for a bit of fresh air and change of scenery. And she's like, mountain scenery. So obviously messages, messages are getting back to them somehow. And this is yeah. really I mean, we know that there's some shady stuff going on, but this is, I think, a pretty blatant clue that, you know, the Death Eaters or somebody was spying on them and reporting. Well, back. I thought the ministry had a, had a, their own tale, maybe maybe in, in France. Probably, but I think you know could have been a Death Eater for all we know. A Death Eater working with the ministry? No, no, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just saying yes, there was a tale. Mm. Somebody reporting back. Yeah, but I mean, you know, why didn't this person see? I guess to mention the Death Eaters, if they saw Hagrid and Olymp, then why not? The Death Eaters. Maybe the Death Eaters, maybe they tail said, oh, well, we found them, so they left before the Death Eaters arrived. Or McNair was the one that they sent. 
But the Death Eater sent McNair. McNair but McNair works, works for the ministry. <gasps> oh, maybe they both sent oh. McNair. Exactly. And he works wow. for both of them. McNair. McNair. Double agent. Double agent. Wow. For whatever reason, I, I like I, – he seems like Sir Ilan Payne if I was going to go Game of Thrones. I feel like they're the same person. You know what I mean? The beheading? Um, I don't because – I don't know. Ilan, Ilan Payne has – I mean you've read all the books. Well, we shouldn't – I'm not going to be spoilery. But he has like a really sadistic sense of humor and like um, has – even though like given his limited – nature um he still has more of a personality where mcnair just seems like this cold dark kill right i don't know i just in my in my mind's eye they seem like connected as the big the guys with the big swords that do the executions yeah i mean well obviously yeah they're both executioners but i actually like ellen payne so i mean he does horrible things but god now people are gonna hate me shoot whatever whatever if you read the book, she'll get it. Oh. I also like that Umbridge is like, really? You don't have much of a tan. Yeah. And then every moment, every time I read that, I read, I picture Hagrid on a beach, like beard flowing in the wind. I don't know. It's the same. It's like the same hilarious image I get when I picture Dumbledore on a beach. Well, he know. he and Madame Maxime <laughs> had a good time in uh, in France. Just <laughs> running away from their tails, losing them, looking at the sights. I mean, there, there was a, a little. In that in that sub story before they actually meet the giants, I, I don't know how long that little excursion was, but they were just touring art and museums and going to little coffee shops. I don't think this took that much time. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. It's not a holiday, so not a real holiday anyway. Right. Well, oh, and there there was one other thing just at the end when Umbridge uh, she noted that there were steps going into the cabin, but she just couldn't figure it out. I thought that was hilarious. Because she kept trying to figure out how is this possible, and then at the end of the day, she does just kind of give up. She knows something is happening, but she just can't figure it out. And how Harry sucks in his gut when she walks by. Yeah, like what does he got a beer gut going? I mean, well, that's the the like major inconsistency between the movie. I mean, not the but one of is that you know Harry. You know, it says I think beginning of this book that he's wearing Dudley's old clothes, right? Mm. And that's telling something. So I don't know. He might not be the scrawny, skinny boy anymore. Who knows? So that's about all I have in this chapter, though it was very fun. There is, but speaking of Umbridge, when she is in, what we learned that, well, the trio try to warn Hagrid to not go wild for his lessons now that he will assume, well, we assume he will go back to his teaching role um, and to just play it safe with his lessons since Umbridge is certainly going to be observing him. And we get yet another hint of the Thestrals, too. Yeah. Wait. Wait, what Thestral hint? I'm sorry, I didn't see it. Because um, he's talking about how he saved in, you know, a great creature, and he has the only domesticated... Oh, he reckons he has yes. the only domesticated right. herd in Britain. Yeah. So. Okay, so this week, podcast question of the week. We actually had such a great audio boo from a listener that I'm just going to use that, because that is along the lines of the question that I was going for anyway. And so, you know, we like to include our listeners on the show. So here's the podcast question of the week from listener Socks and Slugs. Hello, I'm Socks and Slugs, a.k.a. Margie. In Chapter 27 of The Order of the Phoenix, we get the hint that Fudge and Umbridge suspect Hagrid of going to the Giants during his absence from Hogwarts. 
I am using the premise that Fudge does not believe in Voldemort's return, but that Dumbledore is plotting against him and is gunning for the Ministry of Magic position. So my question is this. Do you think that Fudge believes that Dumbledore had sent Hagrid to the Giants in an effort of recruiting them to, say, attacking him? Because if Voldemort is not back, what else would Dumbledore need the Giants for? So basically, to sum this up, she wants you, the listeners, well, she wanted us, but we're passing it on to you. What do you think, put, your, put yourself in the mindset of Fudge. What is his motivation to have Hagrid and Maxime followed if he truly doesn't believe Voldemort is back? There you go. Send in your responses. You know how to do that at alohomora.mogglenet.com. And we might just read it on next week's show. I really like this question. I've never thought about this. It's a very good thing to ask, though. I agree completely. It's a very good question. Thank you, Socks and Slugs, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for listening. And we'd now like to thank Harrison. Thank you for being on our show today. Well, well, it's really – it should be the other way around. Thank you for having me on because I really enjoyed this. I feel like, you know, I get a perspective of this chapter a lot better and – and usually I'm not one to discuss things with people as far as Harry Potter because everyone thinks I'm too crazy of a fan that they don't want to discuss with me. So this is kind of an awesome experience for me. So thank you guys for having me on. Oh, it's truly our pleasure. We, we, we love talking to, you know, the listeners out there and other impassioned Harry Potter fans. Absolutely. So there is no such thing as, well, that's probably not true. There is almost no such thing as too crazy of a Harry Potter fan. <laughs> Let's be honest. So if you would also like to be a guest on our show, you can find out just how to do that by heading over to the Be On The Show page, which you will find on alohomora.mugglenet.com. If you have a set of the standard Apple headphones, you're all set. Um, Otherwise, no fancy equipment will be needed, just something that will let you record and listen on headphones at the same time. And in the meantime, if you want to keep in contact with us, you can find us on Twitter at alohomoramn. Facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Of course, our phone number is 206 Go Albus. That's 206 462 5287. You can subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading those. Don't forget to follow us on Snapchat at MN underscore Alohomora. And of course, the audio boom, much like you heard today in the podcast question of the week. You can record those for free at alohomora.mugglenet.com. All you need is an internet connection and a microphone, and try and keep them under 60 seconds so that we can play them easily on the show. And also make sure to check out our store, which you can see from our main website. Uh, Thank you to everyone for your feedback on what you want to see in the store. There are quite a few new items in the store, especially if you're looking for some new house-specific swag. Um, They're pretty awesome, so you should go check those out. And we also have free ringtones that you can also find on our website. And don't forget our smartphone app, which is available seemingly worldwide. I think there's only one country that we've heard of it's not available in, which surprisingly is Ireland. So How? Oh, I am upset now. Yeah, that's sad. It is. Um, But, you know, perhaps that person just wasn't looking in the right place. I don't know. But for all the information about our app, it's at lohamora.mugglenet.com. And there's a little link to uh, to the app right there. On the app, you can find transcript, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, so much more like Noah reading Harrison's fan fiction. So download it. I think it's only like $1.99 in most places. It's even in Taiwan. So and if it's in Taiwan, it's everywhere. I looked. It's in Taiwan. Good to know. Good to know. Good. Good. Good to know. All right, guys. Uh, so I am very – it's an unfortunate statement to make and there's really no way to go about doing it. 
Um, I've been with the show for a really long time, but now I'm finding that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm about to start a company. It's called Blue Steel Media, and it's really based off of my love of Zoolander, my favorite movie, because Blue Steel is the look that Ben Stiller does in that movie. But uh, the company itself requires a lot of attention, and it's just getting to a certain stage where you know, make it or break it time. So because of that, I, I need to leave the show um, indefinitely so that I can work on this company. And I realize it's going to bother a lot of people. It bothers me a ton. Um, I've been here. That's sad. I'm sorry, Harrison. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> You're the guest. You're the guest here too. Uh, to, to, to hear it. I'm sure everybody, obviously everybody's listening. Here's it. It's just that I got I to gotta do this business. It's a, The company is a creative writing and marketing service. Uh, our first target is startups, but then I'd love it if we can start writing everything from Netflix shows to books because my theory is if you amass enough creative people together, enough creative writers, you can really create a whole lot of interesting content. So that's kind of what I'm doing. But as for Lohamora, you know, I'll, be, I'll still be on Twitter following along, um, if not maybe on the show itself, still very much engaged. So... It's just been a pleasure to be on the show with my fine hosts for the time that I've been around. Um, it's been a ride seeing people at conventions and everything, and I will miss it very much. So that is all I can. That is all I can say to that. And other than open the Dumbledore at the end of the episode, which I won't say now. I just said it, but I will. <laughs> I will say it later, and that'll be the final open the Dumbledore. Well, of course, you know, we wish you all the luck and you're, you're close enough that we'll be seeing you. So, mm-hmm. and as long as you don't stop running the desk pig Twitter, I mean, that's fine. I could, I could probably, I could probably do that a little bit okay. and, and yeah, <laughs> of course. Right. Of course. Got it. Definitely is sad. I know a lot of people are going to, a lot of the listeners are going to miss your wacky ideas. Um, we kind of already had to go through this once, but it's still definitely sad. Um, for people who don't know, Alohomora was Noah's brainchild. And so you definitely have him to thank for this, at least, igniting um, in the first place. Um, so we'll definitely miss you, but know that you're off to great things. And you'll have to at least come back for guest hosting or something every now and then. Yeah, and it's fitting that it's the three of us here since we were the original three. So worked yeah, out. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Absolutely. And on that note, I am Noah Freed. I'm Caleb Graves. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 98 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. I was convinced someone was using Morse code. <laughs> yeah, Morse code. That's, that's what that's, it sounds that's like. Le- that's legit. Interesting. What does it sound it like? It sounds like Morse code. Yeah, like... Oh, no, I'm not doing that. No, I think it's your track because you don't hear it. A weird noise that we're hearing, so... Yeah.
Mm-hmm. Oh, it just hit my teeth with the glass. Ow, that sucks. That's the worst. <laughs> Goodbye, Noah. It's sure been nice to know ya. A goodbye, Noah. It's sure been nice to know ya. But before you go, there's one thing that we've got to know. Before we send you on your way, there's something you gotta tell us today. Is it alive? 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 Thank you, Noah, for everything that you have done for us. We will never forget how you used to believe in the magical And get a little psychological We wish you luck on your next gig But still everyone wants to know what you eat the death gig